I've shared it a few times, but I shared it with a group of uh, leaders one time. I said, look, this whole thing of sin management, this whole thing of, you know, preaching on, you know, uh, whatever, the wrath of God or, or whatever, it doesn't make disciples. It makes liars. The Old Testament and the love of the Father, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser. I am here once again with Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Good evening. And last week we had such a good discussion on the scriptures. I thought it would be really fun to move forward on a, a, a very important topic, and that is how do we approach the Old Testament? Uh, we talked before how a lot of times um, you run the risk of when you have a different perspective of of the Old Testament of being called a, uh, called a Marcionite. Um, perhaps we'll expand on that in this podcast. Um, so it would be great to look at how exactly do we reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament? Is it something we're even supposed to be doing, or is there a way that we're supposed to be approaching the Old Testament? So let's go ahead and get started. How should we approach the Old Testament? What's what's the point? Are we Should we just throw it away? What no? In fact, um, the earliest essay I ever wrote. This goes back to my last year in seminary, nineteen eighty-eight. Um, I wrote an essay uh, titled uh, "The The Testaments Are a Marriage of Convenience." Interesting and, title. Yes, um, and we, we uh, there there is so much to unpack here. Oh my lord! I I I, I hardly even know where to begin. So I, I have to always start with Jesus. Okay, so I don't know where to begin. Where do I begin? I start with Jesus. Okay. Jesus was Jewish. He went to synagogue. He would have he would have heard the Hebrew text read aloud in the synagogue, and then he would have heard the Targums, the Aramaic paraphrases, which are different than the Hebrew text, and those he would have understood. I don't believe Jesus could read. Interesting. Um, yeah, or right. I I I tend to follow Keith. Oh gosh, what's Keith's last name that has written those books? Jesus against the scribes is the title of one, but his his dissertation was on the woman taken in adultery. But at any rate, any rate, I'm 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 not certain, but I don't think he could. I think Jesus learned his scriptural tradition through. Uh, the synagogue, which meant a lectionary system, okay, where certain texts are read in that triennial cycle, and of course, sung in the temple is the Psalms, right? Okay. okay. So, did Jesus know the Old Testament? And the answer is absolutely not, because there were also several portions of the Jewish scriptures that were not allowed to be read publicly. The David story was not allowed to be read publicly. Which which the, one was that again? The David Bathsheba story. Oh, okay. Really? It couldn't be read publicly? No. Interesting. The Ezekiel 1-2 chariot could not be read publicly. It was wow. too mystical. Okay. And, okay. So, so, did Jesus know the Old Testament? The answer is not like we do today because we have printed text. So that's number one. It's very important. But number two is what value did he place on the text? Now, typically, the evangelical comes to the Gospels and says, see, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, therefore he validates the authority of the Old Testament. Right? Right. That's they, what they, they say. That's, how they, that's their logic. Okay. However, what if it can be shown that when Jesus quotes Scripture... He omits things and adds things. 
<laughs> Paul can be shown to do the same thing. Oh my! And then, God. what if that Jesus and Paul are both doing the same thing? Now, there's a hermeneutic. Now we can ask the question: yep. Did Jesus have a hermeneutic? Did Jesus have a way of interpreting the scriptures that was unlike his contemporaries? And if so, what was that way? And then, should we also follow that path? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That is fantastic. And, and first of all, I want to back up to what you were saying about um, Jesus being illiterate. I think, first of all, for those of us in modern-day America, that may seem like a shocking statement. But we have to realize, just, just as Jesus lived in the times he was in, you know, he, he was a product of the time that he, times that he lived in. And in that day, if I'm, if I remember correctly, wasn't literacy only something like three to five percent? Uh, it, it was eight. Eight. Okay. So I was close. Yeah. So, it was, you were close. It was eight percent. So it's very low. And for us in modern day America, it's hard for us to believe that where everybody at least reads at a third grade level. I mean, at least. And, right. uh, and, and so that's hard for us to conceive that there was a time when the vast majority of people could not read. And so it, it's not a big stretch. It's, again, we have to rethink the way we read things through our lens. It's not a huge stretch to think that Jesus couldn't read, especially he was poor. And, and knowing that the background he came from, the family he came from, it's not a stretch at all for him to yeah. have been illiterate. I, I, I want to just throw this in there. Jesus wasn't poor. Oh, okay. Jesus had a trade. Oh, okay. A poor person is a person that doesn't have a trade, doesn't own land, and they, they, they have to hire themselves out as day laborers. Okay. Jesus was a right. tradesman. Right. He had a trade. Okay. And, uh, and a trade that would be in demand. Now, remember, he's only 10 miles from Sepphoris, which is a, a growing, growing uh, uh, Greco-Roman city there in northern Galilee. Yeah. You know, and he certainly knows Capernaum. I mean, that's where Peter's mother-in-law lives, you know? Yeah. So he knows those two big cities. He would have had work if he wanted it. Oh, wow. So I stand corrected. That that really, because, you know, all my life I just heard that he grew up poor and impoverished and all that. And that really uh, untangles a lot for me. There's more truth to that than the charismatic nonsense of, oh, they gave him gold, so he was rich. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. But but it, it even adds more to him choosing the path that he chose of, of ministry, of um, of living from place to place where he had a trade. So he could have lived by their standards a pretty, at least, stable life. Yeah, he could, and he did. Yeah, very, very interesting. And And then, let's see. The other thing that was really interesting was you were hitting on scriptures that could not be read in the uh, in the gatherings. Um, that was really interesting because, again, we have to unwind our American thinking. They did not just pop open the Old Testament and go, this is our Bible. We're waiting for it to be finished. And then just start reading whatever, you know, whatever verse they, they picked up. There were actually uh, scriptures that they could read and that they could not read. That's That's very interesting. Yeah, it, it uh, you know the the more you know about uh, Second Temple Judaism, the more you really can appreciate Jesus. I've I've got a joke I want to play here, and I can't get to it fast enough because because I'm not fast enough. <laughs> here, the, there it is. You know, this is I, I just want to get inside the church someday. You know, and and do, do you know do this? Um, your breasts are like pomegranates. <laughs> church oh yeah no i remember in seventh grade finding out about song of solomon and be like "Ooh, look at this this is in the bible dude <laughs> so 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 the question is what where how did jesus approach his his, his the textual tradition because right. remember there is also the pharisaic oral tradition which is out there, right? Yeah. There's also the interpretation of the Essenes, which Jesus is familiar with, 
and John the Baptist right. probably was in a scene. There's also the Samaritans and Samaritan theology. Now, people, even New Testament scholars don't study Samaritan theology, but it's a very distinct theology. In fact, Gnosticism comes out of the Samaritan Jewish tradition. I Next did not know that. Yep. Wow. Um, and then there are the apocalyptic sectarians. So, so there's and 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 then the zealot movement. There are many interpretations, right, of 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 what it means to be Jewish, what it means to do the will of God, you know. And um, Jesus does not seem to derive his understanding of his Father from the Jewish scriptures. Okay. Jesus seems to derive his understanding of the Father from his time in the natural world, watching how the Father takes care of life and the creation. Oh, wow. That, that'll, that'll rattle some cages. Well, the, the thing is, is that for Jesus, the Father is only benevolent, you see. Yeah. Now, if Jesus were Rick Warren... Rick Warren urges us in the purpose-driven life, if you want to know who God is, go take all the names of God in the Old Testament, and that's who God the Father is. That's, that's, Jesus would say to that, you know, that's a, a crock of fecal matter. <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't even approach the text that way, right? In fact, in Jesus' day, there's no canon. Different groups have different canons, different texts they regard as authoritative. Okay, so there's none of that like there is today. And so Jesus Michael, seems let me, to derive... let me interject a question, yeah. Michael. Jesus was a rabbi. What does that mean in, in light of what you're saying about his education? Yeah, rabbi does not, in Jesus' day, is not a title uh, like it is in the um, uh, second century after him, post-Jamnia. Rabbi at that time is a title of respect, but it, it is it does it is not uh, someone who's ordained as part of a tradition like it would become. Okay, Rabbi would be okay. another way of saying Rabbi would be Didaskalos teacher. Okay, but in our way of thinking, a teacher is someone that is uh, educated on uh, certain subjects. Correct. When this is precisely the thing that Martin Hengel brought out. In his book, The Charismatic Leader and His Followers, he urged us to, to see Jesus as a person who has a charismatic authority. He is educated by God himself or herself. Jesus chooses to be educated by the Father. Okay. Yeah, there's no doubt he has studied. He, I bet you Jesus spent time doing what Hillel did, sitting outside the little classroom where the students that, that could afford to be taught were being taught. I, and, you know, he would have sat outside the window. He certainly would have spent time with the Essenes. I mean, Jesus was a student. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. He can engage Pharisaic thinking, Sadduceic thinking, Essene thinking, Samaritan thinking, Zelotic thinking, apocalyptic thinking. Jesus, you can tell he studied. But he's self-taught. He's an autodidact. Okay. He's like you and me. He's like all of us, really. Well, it, I find it interesting you were talking about how um, Jesus and then Paul does the same uh, with their hermeneutic. And just to clarify for people who that's a, a – they're not used to that phrase. And, Michael, you did say this, that it's it, – hermeneutic simply means the way you approach the scriptures, the interpretation you use. We all bring an interpretation to the scriptures when we approach it. And uh, what, what I find fascinating is that you said that Jesus edits or omits things – um, when he when he interprets it, so when he's looking at the Old Testament he's, or he's quoting things, he's actually editing the text. And now for us in the Protestant tradition, that's terrifying and disturbing and something that a lot of us would immediately have a, a knee-jerk reaction to throw away because it's like, wait a minute, no, 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 no. You're, you're supposed to quote it exactly. And, and you're, and you're saying that he's, he's editing the text or omitting things because it doesn't fit with his interpretation. So could you, could you expand on that? Yeah. Jesus violates every law that I teach my students. 
<laughs> I teach them not to do this. <laughs> no, here's the deal. Jesus cherry-picked his traditions. I want to cherry-pick my traditions, but I want to learn to pick the same cherries Jesus picked. That's good. That's a nice way of saying it. So could you give an example of a scripture where he did that, just so people can like see an example so, of it? So off the top of your mind, could you kindly please recite to me the first part of the Great Commandment? Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jim, is he correct on that? The first part? Yeah. The first part is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Is one. Right. But but the the love, he, Lord said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that correct? I, I know what you're I going after. I believe strength <laughs> isn't there, but w- go ahead. I, I, I know it's I, not I there. I think that's almost. Actually, <laughs> Ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. Ooh, ooh. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's love the Lord your God yeah. with all your heart, soul, and strength. Yes. And the strength. one who yeah. says, love the Lord with your mind, with your mind. Mm-hmm. That's what he says. Mm-hmm. He adds, and he's, put, he's the one who puts in mind. So Jesus what? added that. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Right? Or the most telling text would of course be Luke chapter 4 where when he cites the Isaiah 61 text which is a text of jubilee it was a text that was actually used in the jubilee ceremony in the temple spirit of the Lord is on me the high priest would say he's anointed me to announce this year of jubilee right and Jesus does all this stuff you know recovery of sight to the blind freedom to the prisoners liberation da, 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 and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and he omits the phrase and out the, of Isaiah and the day of the vengeance the of, of our his God. Vengeance. Substitutes yes. it, right? And the crowd, the crowd gets angry. Yes. Our translations don't want to tell us this. They say, and oh, we're amazed. We're amazed at the words of grace that came out of his mouth. No, the Greek text is a dative of disadvantage. And all were pissed at the words of grace that came from his mouth. He has to cite two texts. To justify his hermeneutic, he cites the Elijah. Elisha says, I mean, "You know, God sent Elijah to foreigners. God sent Elisha to foreigners. God's jubilee is going to the Romans. God's bringing jubilee to the Gentiles. Isn't this great? Our God's going to become their God. They get so mad they want to kill him." Wow. Mm-hmm. There's the hermeneutic right there. Bam. Wow. Uh, and it's interesting because. As a kid, I remember even asking, why did he stop there? And I was told it's because the other part of the verse is for his second coming. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish you guys could see his facial expression when I said that. <laughs> um, yeah, so so it's interesting because because of the translations we had translating that part of the Greek poorly, we don't see that, no, they the Jews had the same reaction, uh, at least saw the same thing I did, went, wait, wait, where's the rest of the verse? And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and But then he goes on saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm not worried about the, there is no other part of this. This right. is where, this is it. This is the full statement right here. I'm, uh, yeah, like you said, God's going to the Gentiles, God's going to the Romans. And they're not happy about that. Wow. Changes that whole scene. Because I remember when I would read that as a kid, it would feel like almost like a Saturday Night Live uh, sketch. Because you would be like, man, that sure escalated quickly. Because with, with, the, with the, you know, they were all amazed at his speech. Let's kill him. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. Wait, what? <laughs> he stepped I, on I, someone's purse or something? I mean. <laughs> he had too much coffee. Jim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But now, but see, when you bring that in, it makes absolute sense because it's like, yeah, he was he was preaching grace, which still to this day, as we pointed out last week, will will get people very upset when you start speaking peace and nonviolence and that God loves the people you hate. Boy, that'll that'll get you into hot water faster than anything. We should say the Father loves the people that you hate, not not a God concept. See, I'm learning. Well, there you go. <laughs> so then, knowing. Jesus's hermeneutic, how does that change the way we approach the Old Testament? You know, you'd want to catalog the various ways Christians 
come to the Old Testament. Some use allegory as a method. I have a dear friend on Facebook uh, that I think is as good an allegorist as Origen was. Uh, you know, but but the 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 whole point of what Richard's work is is to do what Origen did, and that's explain that all these texts about the violent God have nothing to do with God. They're about the soul and the struggle of the you know worldly desire. And all, blah, 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 blah. Um, some do a supersessionist approach. You know, the 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 um, the old is 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 done. Christ is finished work and he's done all this and and they end up not even being able to do ethics uh, some uh, uh, are who are anti-semitic want to jettison the text uh, like uh, perhaps a Marcion uh, some want to put it together uh, along with the apostolic writings and call the whole thing a Bible as though it's it's one book so there, there are many ways to relate you know and understand the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. Yeah. The very fact that we use the words Old and New Testament is already theologically loaded. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So what I tell my students is, what's the point of the New Testament? And they look at me like, I don't know. And I tell them, it teaches us how to read the Jewish scriptures. Okay. Because the Jewish scriptures are rich, 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 rich in both uh, anthropology and theology. And the way that you move through Israel's history and see how this, this nonviolent, defenseless creator who create just is a life giver has to kind of come into a world where humans have created God concepts that are all wrong, you know, and, 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 and express what love is when they only know two-faced gods or angry gods, sky gods. Mm -hmm. right? And here's the father through, the, through this people's history trying to nudge them along toward what, a, what, what he, it, life would look like if he were there, so to speak, right? And um, and it, it shows us all this. In fact, the book of Genesis, if all we had was the book of Genesis, we could figure out the gospel. Because you move from the warring brothers of Cain and Abel through the series of warring brothers till Joseph, who becomes the scapegoat of a community, a mom, but he forgives them at the end. And Judah, Judah says, take me, not Benjamin. He's a Christ figure in that text. Right? So even if you only had Genesis, it's there. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it's fascinating because just this week I was having a conversation with my daughter and we were, we were talking about Genesis. And, and I was talking about how the, the story of Adam and Eve is so brilliant because mm -hmm. the whole thing of uh, – of, we talked about mimetic theory on here, how you see it take place there where Eve takes the fruit and then, and then Adam mimics her. And that's when the problem begins is we start to mimic one another. And it's always been, oh, woman did the sin. It's like, no, it's that we start imitating each other. And that's the problem. Eve took the fruit. Okay, fine. She took the fruit. But then Adam does the same. He copies what she did. I, I was just like, that's mind blowing. That's so cool. And I love how what you said about Genesis the the whole gospel is it's it's revealed right there it, it can be found there so so um rest of these people were not marcionites <laughs> but no no there's no one that, there's certainly no one that could could accuse accuse us of being marcionites and if they do they're misunderstanding marcion or they're misunderstanding us Yes, and that's what I want to bring out next is because what I found is a lot of people who use the Marcion accusation, I found that a lot of them it's it's kind of like kind of like your YouTube experts, you know, your your people who watch one YouTube video and they're like, now I'm an expert on world history, you know, or something like that, and uh, and I've seen that with Marcion where. Um, their their take is they they've been told something about Marcion and so they just attribute that to anybody who disagrees with their view of the New Testament. But I, I want to put this question out there: Is first of all, could you explain 
what the problem was with Marcion as far as why, you know, he's branded a heretic and, and that kind of thing. But you also said the thing with Marcion wasn't um, it, it was Marcion asked the right question. I love that you said that, Michael. You brought that out in the past. You said Marcion, it wasn't the question he asked. He asked the right question. He just came to the wrong conclusion. Could you expand on that? Marcion's studies in the last perhaps 15 years have exploded. Uh, my, my 20 years. Uh, there have been so many excellent new uh, uh, dissertations that have been published on Marcion. I know I've uh, read at least 15 or 20 uh, of these uh, in this last couple of years. Uh, the uh, reconstruction of Marcion's Gospel of Luke has been uh, completed, uh, or I mean hypothetically, as well as the Pauline letters. So uh, we have access now, you know, to, to a lot of stuff we didn't have uh, in the 20th century. So um, first, Marcion asked the right question. Marcion comes from Pontus. Pontus is North Galatia. Okay, We know what happened in the letter to the Galatians. That would have been a very important letter. In fact, it fronted Marcion's Pauline canon. Okay, And um, Marcion's solution to the problem of what does the gracious father of Jesus and Paul have to do with the, the it, okay, <clears throat> we have to distinguish here between Marcion and then later uh, Marcionite. Marcion was asking, what, what does the gracious God of Paul and Jesus have to do with the just God of the Jews? His answer was that you have the creator God, that makes physical reality the demiurge, but above the creator God's the spirit, the true God, the spirit God. And Jesus came from the spirit God, or, you know, the spirit God revealed himself in Jesus. And and that, that was what Marcion did, was he essentially had two gods, a dualism, a good God and a, an inferior God. Well, that's no different than the dualism of God and Satan, but it's a little nicer, right? The early church made the mistake in their countering of Marcion as saying that the God of the Jewish scriptures was the Father. Okay. Jesus is in the Gospels, he's the Son, and then the Epistles is the Spirit. Okay? So the early church, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Augustine, they set us off on the wrong path trying to answer Marcion's problem. Marcion asked the right question. Now, his, some of his later disciples, like Serdo and others, would make, make it even sharper. What does the kind, gracious God of the New Testament have to do with the violent God of the Old Testament? Okay, not, no, it's longer about this just creator God, this demiurge. It's not about... Mm -hmm. The, the, the real recognition that Christianity is an, is nonviolent, that the Father's nonviolent. What does that have to do with the violent God? Now, that's an even sharper posing of the question. It's a correct posing of the question, but they came up with the wrong answers. Right. Okay. Wow. That's really, thanks for explaining that, because I think that'll help a lot of people and kind of clarify the whole Marcion thing. Um, and, and Jim, Bringing this into the, the real world experience that you have, it, having pastored congregations and daily having contact with people, getting untangled from a lot of stuff, how would you say that, that you have found that um, people's perspective on the Old Testament and kind of getting um, tangled up in, in views that contradict Jesus, the Father he showed us, how would you see that, that that's tripped people up? Well, the easiest thing is is for people to... Uh, come up with a uh, concept that uh, is follows along with dispensationalism. We're in the dispensation of grace or the dispensation of the church. And therefore, in this dispensation of grace, Jesus and God can be merciful. Uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. His, mer his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Even when we're not faithful, he remains faithful. And, and they can cherry pick all those uh, scriptures and put it in this one uh, bag, if you will, of uh, we're in this dispensation. But there will be a time when that dispensation comes to an end. Um, it's at the rapture, it's at the second coming, it's at one of those things. <laughs> After the thousand years or before, I'm not sure which. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Anyhow, um, and everything changes and we're now in a uh, judgment type of a dispensation when when uh, God's God is done and um, with showing grace and mercy and now his justice kicks in and his justice demands that he punishes sin that he um, the 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 vials of wrath and you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse and and the seals are opened and and all of these things and 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 so everything seems to fit if you adhere to dispensationalism uh, then everything fits you can have one God can be both things he can be merciful and he can uh, be wrathful at the same time. In different dispensations, um, there is a little bit of spillover, and that is that even in this dispensation of grace or or mercy or whatever you want to call it, uh, that uh, you know you can run out the clock, so to speak, and uh, you know don't don't <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't. Um, yeah. You know, uh, this is the day of his visitation. See to it that you don't miss the day of visitation, you know, and and whatever. And so we kind of run out the clock somewhere, uh, and it's like, okay, we've done the 70 times 7, uh, except they forget that that's supposed to be in one day. But <laughs> it's like, here comes the lightning bolts. It's like, okay, you, you know... <laughs> I'm sorry, but the day of grace is over for you, you know. But mostly it's, it's, it has to do with dispensationalism. So it, it becomes a, a justification or a way to explain the, uh, the uh, Janus face or, or two-faced God image that people want to hold on to is, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll work this into dispensationalism. We'll, we'll have that dispensationalist view. So it, it lets us have both. Dispensationalism is the ultimate violation of the Nicene Creed. Well, we have to have both because all scripture is given by inspiration. So everything in the 66 books has to be absolutely uh, accurate. Uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, all, uh, you know, it's inspired. It's all dictated and, and, and therefore... It, we have to make this fit somehow, and uh, we're not allowed right. to ask questions. Uh, the minute you ask questions, you're on the road to a heresy, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> Exactly right, and uh, and then and then Michael, you said dispensational dispensationalism is a violation of the Nicene Creed. Could you explain Absolutely. that? Absolutely, sure. Dispensationalist divides the Godhead into three distinct persons, and there's no unity. There's no essential unity. They're just completely distinct. Time of the Father, time of the Son, time of the Spirit. <clears throat> That's a heresy. That's the Sabellianism. Yeah. We have a God behind God. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's a heresy. And the dispensationalist is, cannot do an authentic doctrine of the Trinity. Well, first of all, the father's the bad cop, the son's a good cop. The Holy Ghost just a spook. You know, I mean, really. I mean, they, their God their God is no different than any Roman God, Greek God, Aztec God, ancient God, Babylonian God, primitive God, sacrificial God, bloodthirsty, vampiric, Aztec, 
bring me the sacrifice of the humans god that's their god their god is conceived of within that janus faced god and the dispensationalist is trying to tell tell me that this is jesus this is revelation that's a crock of crap you know when you were talking i just had the perfect picture of what the dispensationalist god is it's clint eastwood and unforgiven because he he was the gunfighter right killed a whole bunch of people but then he met a good woman and he settled down and he had kids and became a good non-violent guy he's a good guy now but the day is coming we know it's coming every former gunslinger the bad thing happens and he takes up the gun again and now he kills everybody and And, and, and we're cheering him on and so that's who the dispensationalist god is it's a western gunslinger in all the western movies it's the guy who was the gunfighter hung up his guns and then he's gonna put them on again when trouble comes to town oh yeah you you said it (laughs) so that's crazy i mean that's that's uh that's interesting because it's like uh so it's it's like we have a view of God, that, or, or that 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 view of God is basically that you're just in this sliver of time where he's he's you're you're having the nice God for this season, but that season's gonna end pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, and that's um when it ends. That's that's not very restful. Mm-hmm. That's that's not a, not a good place to find rest. I mean, that would be like that'd be like imagine imagine you have a kid. And uh, I mean, we all have kids, but I mean, you know, some, someone's a father and, and they, and they, and, and they're, they're like, okay, one day, one day daddy's going to flip out and lose it. Yeah, right. You know, one day you don't know when, but it's coming and he's going to trash the place. I mean, he's going to, he's going to get out a blowtorch and he's taking this house down. But in the meantime, he's warm and cuddly. So just, you know, cuddle up now while you can. Yeah, you can. I, I laugh at those people that say, you have to hold God's attributes in tension. I think if God is tense, he needs to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> right. Man, it's so comforting when you realize the father that Jesus revealed. He is the father in life in whom there is no shadow of turning. No shadow no. of turning. God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. We are told to axiomatic times in the new testament one by james one by the author of first john bam it's right there staring you in the face yeah that deserves that that needs to be emphasized it's the whole thing that there is no dark side to god in him Mm -hmm. there is no darkness at all now people would go oh but but you know oh that that's his wrath is justified no in, in him there's no darkness none he doesn't have wrath. How how can his how can how can how can his wrath be justified when he doesn't have any? He's not a wrathful God. He's not like us. Yeah. Well, and I've even heard that the interpretation, the 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 original language of of uh, when it says love is patient, and we know God is love, so God is patient. Um, the actual word there used means to be means to put away anger. It, yeah. it, it's it's different than our term just patient like oh, okay all right oh, i'm gonna stand in line behind this person and hold it together a little longer but it's yeah. actually put away i'm not even i'm not even gonna go there i'm not even gonna get angry i'm gonna put away put away the anger so that's quite a quite a contradiction to the uh to the picture sometimes we're we're shown but even even go beyond that lauren um patient kind uh then it says, does not rejoice in, in evil or in iniquity, rejoices in truth, okay? Keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, boy. So Correct. 1 Corinthians 13 says that's love. But yes. we're also told that God is love. So what you're yes. saying is true. We can put God's name in there instead of love. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not rejoice in evil or iniquity. He rejoices in truth. And if we would do that and let our mind... uh, I I, I like that, Michael, that Jesus is the one that said, put the word mind in there, love the Lord with your mind. 
but at any rate, if we would engage our mind when reading 1 Corinthians 13 and put God in there, we would have to come up with a whole different conclusion. If God doesn't keep a record of wrongs, then where's wrath fit into that? It does. It can't fit into that. Right. The um, the best text to use for this is Second Corinthians five uh, sixteen to twenty one, where Paul actually uses accounting language. God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self, not accounting their trespasses against them. In other words, there's no record books in heaven. Oh, oh boy. What, wait a minute. Uh, what, what about that uh, whole the, the, Lamb's the, the, Book the, the, of Life the, the, thing? The, the, and... the revelator is still stuck in that second temple <laughs> eschatology. The revelator has not made the move fully to gospel. This is important. Look, this is important. The New Testament has books that show us writers who are still, they're, they're on the cusp of the gospel. They're Christians, Christian churches, Christian thinking, they're, they're, but they're still stuck. They're not fully in the gospel yet. And then we have other texts that are in the gospel already. They're there. They made it. You know? I mean, the New Testament gives us this wonderful, it shows us both how and how not to do gospel thinking. Wow. So in other words, we're supposed to use our mind when we read the New Testament? <laughs> no, that's that's really good. So it's it's not just you you actually have to discern even when you're reading the New Testament. Is this is this somebody who's completely grasped the gospel or is this somebody who's still getting there? I have 53 brain cells left. <laughs> Heart <laughs> all the time. Read <laughs> a New Testament prop. He would say, "You know, Michael, every time you smoke pot or you drink alcohol, you're burning a million brain cells." I said, "I got a trillion of the six You old hippie. <laughs> I'm down to fifty-three. <laughs> Jim, I, I want to ask you. Sure. You've had the experience of seeking I I, th- I think the language that you would use is seeking to preach grace to an environment prone to legalism right. um, is that that does that make sense to you yes yes you've also been rejected for that just like Jesus was is that correct correct does correct. I understand it yes I know why I still love the gospel and love scripture and love the the ideal of the church why do you so having been raised in a charismatic church system where you cross the line and you get called in on the carpet and and uh, many times uh, scripture is uh, used in the in the uh, attempt to correct you and your attitude and your action and and whatever and uh, when I uh, started to engage my brain my mind as I began to read uh, Galatians Ephesians Romans uh, Colossians uh, I I started seeing things that convinced me that not only was the way we approached each other wrong, but the way that we believed God approached us was wrong. You know, we made fun of the Catholics because they had confession on Saturday night, and the only difference is we had it Sunday morning, we called it the altar, you know, come up here and confess your sin, you know, and, and, and... you know, rededicate your life to Christ and oh, yeah. whatever. Oh, and yeah. So when I first started uh, preaching, if you will, uh, grace, uh, I was warned on many occasions that um, if I keep preaching this, what's going to happen is people are going to believe it and they're going to go out and start 
doing all kinds of sinful things. And <laughs> my thought, and, and, and actually my answer was that they will only go out and do what's in their heart to do, call it sin, don't call it sin, that, I'm not going to deal with that, uh, but they're only going to do what's in their heart to do anyhow. And right. as I understand the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about the heart a lot. <laughs> he talked about if you do this in your heart, you've already done it. So, yeah. you know, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So if it's in their heart, and let's just say it really is sin, okay, let's just say it really is sin, then wouldn't it be better for me to preach the grace of God, which the Bible says it is that grace that teaches me how to say no to sin? Wouldn't it be better for that which is locked in the heart, if you will, to come to the surface so that I can begin to see it in my own life and say, yuck, I, I really don't like that. And so mm. I, I use the analogy of the purification of gold or whatever, that here you have this rock that has gold in it, and you bring it to a boiling point, and all this um, dross comes to the top, and you skim off the top. And I said, okay, here, here's this person that's, you know, he's 75% pure, but he's got this thing down in his heart. I'm just telling you the way I, I kind of approached it. And they got this down in their heart. Now, I begin to teach grace, and grace becomes like a refiner's or a purifying fire. And this thing is way down in the heart, comes up to the surface. What happens? The Holy Spirit just skims it off, and they're purified. So grace yeah. is the thing that we want to preach. We don't want to preach, you know, repentance from sin, get your life together, become a disciple, you know. I want to be a disciple of grace. I don't want to be a disciple of law. So that that's kind of the journey I've been on. And to answer your question, uh, yes, it has caused the loss of... Um, Friendships, long-time friendships. It's cost position in the church. Um, I'm no longer welcome in the church that I grew up in. And at one time, uh, it was put out that I was uh, reprobate and um, was not to be fellowshipped in any way. So if somebody that was still in that fellowship saw me in a grocery store, they would turn around and walk the other direction, you know. Oh, um, I didn't uh, have as big a problem with that as my children did, why they could no longer play with kids their age or whatever. Uh, but, oh. uh, but we move on. So as they say, or as they said to me, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> well, man, after hearing all that, I I don't know if we should have you on the podcast anymore, Jim. Um, I, <laughs> exactly. I just, uh, <laughs> no, really. Yeah. In all seriousness, that's it, it's easy to laugh about, but when you're when you're living it, there's definite pain that that goes through oh. that. You know, um, sure. it is uh, it is it is no small thing to be. One of the most painful things I've seen is actually just to simply be misunderstood. Um, when people can't see your heart and see that you love them and that's your, that's actually your motive, and that that becomes an, an excruciatingly painful thing to to walk through. Um, it's interesting when you were talking, telling your story, Jim. I was thinking about how. Um, you're actually providing the antidote to sin. Because if you remember, we talked about, um, when we talked about the podcast of sin, one of the things, Michael, you said was how, uh, and you were quoting somebody, I don't remember who, but how sin is the way we deal with our pain. 
Sin is the destructive way we deal with our pain. Yeah, Denny Moon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, Denny Moon, thanks. Good. So it's like basically if sin is the way I'm dealing with my pain, shaming someone is not going to help them at all or beating them up to fix themselves. What's going to fix them is the, like you were doing, Jim, is the love of the Father. That's yeah. that's the antidote because it's my, it's my pain. Okay. And unless you deal with the pain, I'm just going to keep repeating it over and over. And then when you heap shame on it, then I'm going to repeat it even worse and now i'm just going to feel twice as condemned about it so it's when you when you bring when you bring the antidote of love and and when i say bring the antidote of love i don't mean here i love you now i expect to see you fixed next week which is which is what we tend to do also when i see people bring that in but it's the antidote is love and what that means is i'm going to continue to love you i'm going to continue to accept you and walk with you even if this is still something you're dealing with for years there's no time limit on here. Just like we said, the Father keeps no record of wrong. And we talked about Jesus forgiving the sins 70 times 7. I'm, I'm still right here with you. And when you bring that to the table... In time, that seed that doesn't come that that doesn't come back void. You know that's gonna that's gonna birth fruit because eventually, eventually that healing is gonna take place. At least at some degree. Um, I, I love how my friend Michael Rose shared a story about um, this uh, a man who w- was an alcoholic that they who was really struggling and everybody kind of threw gave up on him and he said how this man being touched by the love of god he went from being drunk every day to being drunk one day being drunk five days a week instead of seven days and they said for them that was as much of a victory as somebody who was just completely delivered and free from everything because the love of the father touched his heart so much that it was i love how he said it was about direction not not crossing some kind of finish line it's that that man was moving towards love. And, and that's, that's what I see is, is all the callings of the followers of Jesus, is to help people move towards the love of the Father. We have to get the church out of sin management mode, which it's been in for, forever. I mean, Luther tried to get us out. Calvin put us back in. You know, uh, the Anabaptists put us back in. Good, good night. I, and the evangelicals and the dispensationalists, they, they put us in. Threw away the key. Ugh. <laughs> we get out. We have we, we we can't start our gospel with sin. The gospel doesn't start with sin. It starts with good news, a good yeah. news about a God who's so very very different that even when we hate him, even when we kill him, he still embraces us. Exactly. Yes. It, yes. it doesn't start with sin and sin management. In, in fact, just real quick, kind of opening up a little personal story from a week ago. It's funny because growing in all of this, you know, we're going through this big move right now. And I had a situation where I was mad at God, not not in a theological, you know, I'm, oh, you can't get mad at God. You know, I don't care about that stuff anymore. I was just frustrating the situation. I know he loves me and all that. So anyway, I, I'm in this situation. And it's funny because in the situation, I just prayed mad. I'm like, I'm mad. I'm just mad. I'm going to pray mad. And the moment I finished, stop praying, Lily gets a text that was the answer to the prayer. And I was like, I was laughing because I was like, that was the most bad attitude prayer I have ever prayed. And he answered it immediately. (laughs) That'll blow up any of your, you know, theology about having everything perfect and getting in that serene, peaceful place, have the music, playing the worship music, singing the songs. It's like, I was like, God, you know this is going on. F this, F that, da-da-da. And I'm not kidding. That's the language I used. How about you? And I'm like, I need to know the answer. Am I crazy? Or I need to know the answer now. Our lives are on the line. And Lily, bling text right there. That's beautiful. The father is so cool. He is. He is. And it's things like that that affirm it over and over again because he really does deserve the title father because that's how a father is. You know, when you have a little kid and they're throwing a fit, you don't get all, you know, pious and mad. You still love your kid. They're just being a kid and they're going through something, you know? So so here's the thing, Lauren. Here's here's the father and he's – Lauren – 
needs an answer, and I could send it to him, but if I just wait about five minutes, he's going to pray this. <laughs> so I think I'm going to hold off until he gets done. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then he goes, ha, no text for you. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll give it to Lily. <laughs> exactly. You know, That's what it was, yes. Now, wait, okay, now, wait a minute. You just messed up my whole theology right there, because you're right. He gave it to my peaceful wife. He didn't send me the text. He gave it to Lily, no. who's just been walking yeah. peacefully in faith this whole time. I'm, I'm just her, her screwed-up husband who's along for the trip. <laughs> oh, you're making my face so, hurt, Jim. So, I want to... I want to tell you something. I I uh, shared this with uh, I've shared it a few times, but I shared it with a group of uh, leaders one time. I said, "Look, this whole thing of sin management, this whole thing of you know preaching on you know uh, whatever the wrath of God or or whatever, it doesn't make disciples. It makes liars." Yes. Ooh, brilliant! Wow, dang! Because that's all. That's... I get, I get tired of hanging my head down and going to my pastor or my accountability partner or whoever and saying, "Oh, I did it again." So instead, I start with a little white lie. Well, I had a struggle, but you know. I made it by God's grace. Yes. And next, next week, uh, I don't even want to put in the struggle part. I say, man, two weeks, I've been doing good. I I think I've had breakthrough. Uh, why and, do you have calluses on your right hand? <laughs> <laughs> and, and where do I go from here? Am, am, am I going to backtrack two or three or four weeks from now and say, you know what, I've been lying to you? You're right. No, I'm not. Right. I'm going to keep telling you that I'm doing good and hope that my sin doesn't land me in the uh, uh, front page of the newspaper. Yep. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah, yep. so it doesn't work. But no, that that's really good. And, and you know, it's, it reminds me of a, a skit my friend Bob Humphrey and I did years back where we did this video skit where we had the accountability partners, you know, at the church, how they always, you, you, you meet with your accountability person and it had this young guy who's meeting with his elder and the young guy comes, says, the elder says, how's your week been? He says, oh, it's been a bad week. I really fell, I really struggled with lust. I, I was mad at my wife, got in an argument, goes down his whole list of sins, looks up all the scourges, elder, and goes, how, how about you? How are you doing? He goes, me? I'm fine. And then the skit just ends right there. <laughs> so the guy just pours his heart out in the elder, just, I'm fine. It's just like what you're saying, Jim. It's like we learn to put up the shield, you know, be, become the liars. I, I, the, I have that accountability nonsense. What oh, I yeah. was a little booth with a curtain on it. Well, I went in and told the priest what I did, and then I had to go do so many Hail Marys and so many Our Fathers, and that's how I learned to pray so fast. <laughs> wow. You know, when you're a little kid, you know, you, you know, the, they got the little old ladies there, the Italian ladies where I was at, you know, doing the sure. rosaries while they're praying fervently. I mean, I, I'd go up there and be like... Man, turbo prayer. Turbo prayer. I'm speaking in tongues at that point. Yes, exactly. If you're in a charismatic church, you probably would have been confused for doing that. I went to a charismatic, I went to a charismatic church once. I recited the Lord's Prayer in Greek. And this person stands up and gives this interpretation about clouds and the third heaven and all kinds of Oh, no. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is hilarious. 
Oh man. Oh no. I'm doing stuff like that. Oh no. Well, guys, this th- we're at time again. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation and uh, enjoyable as usual. Um, hey, guys, if um, if anybody out there is interested on getting a hold of uh, of of some, because we have two two men here who are both writers. Um, uh, so, Michael, you have a lot of material out there. Where can people find uh, your books and and your works? Uh, Amazon. Uh, look under Michael Harden, look under the book, The Jesus Driven Life. Uh, it'll take you to my page. I have 10 books. I have two YouTube channels, one under my name and one under Preaching Peace. All right. Awesome. And then Jim, you recently uh, wrote a book and uh, my friend David Fredrickson, who I highly respect. In fact, I hope we can have him on here sometime because he's a fellow hip, former hippie like you guys. I, I don't know if you ever leave being a hippie, um, who part of the Jesus People movement. And he actually praised your book as being one of the um, best books on on the church that he's ever read. And, and, uh, and he's even written one on the church. So that's saying a lot. Um, Jim, where could people find find your book? It is out of print right now, and will be back on Amazon hopefully within the month. So, what's um, the title of your book? Jim? Just keep tuned. Keep tuned. The title is "Dying of Thirst on the Bank of the River." Excellent. All right, and so by the time this podcast airs, because these are three weeks behind, you'll probably, listeners, you'll just be about one week away from uh, from that book true. being back yeah. on Amazon. So so keep an eye out for that stuff. All right, guys. Well, um, appreciate you all listening in, our audience listening in, and thanks for being here again, you guys. This was fun, and we will do this again next week. Bye.